Hi, I'm John Popola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. On this episode, I have a conversation with educational entrepreneur Jeff Sandifer. Jeff was a very successful entrepreneur before shifting into education, where he worked at the University of Texas, started the Acton MBA program, and now runs Acton Academy, an unbelievably innovative new school that serves K-12 students in a model that's really like almost nothing you've ever seen before. Full disclosure, my son is a student at Acton Academy. So I'm excited to share this conversation with you, and I hope you get as much out of hearing from Jeff as I get out of being a parent at his school. Jeff Sandifer, thank you for coming. I, um, you're one of my favorite people right now because... Well, right now, good. I'm good. <laughs> Subject to change. That's what Homer, Homer Simpson says, so far. <laughs> so far. So far. But especially because um, you are the founder, co-founder of my son Mateo's school and his participation in your school is maybe the most exciting thing in Lisa and I's life. So I'm very excited to talk to you about how we got to the place where we're talking about that and how he's there and how you got to that place in your life. But I want to start with your own education. Sure. So how did, you know, you didn't start off in your career of saying, I'm going to be a, an educational entrepreneur. So how did you get started? Well, no, I, I had a very traditional education. I was uh, born and raised in Abilene, Texas. It's a small town. Um, I was raised in an upper middle class family, but that's a little deceiving because we were rich one year and broke the next. My father was a wildcatter like the movie Giant. So we always lived as if we had money, although sometimes I knew we didn't. So what does that um, mean? What's a wildcatter? Because I'm, wild, I'm, 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 I'm from Philly, so I don't know some of this Wildcatter is that, that uh, archetypal oil man who's going out, and, and this was true of Dad, even when he was ahead, he was unhappy. And he wanted to bet it all on one more well. And so, you know, he would bet it too many times on one more well. And then he would be broke and he would have to go raise some more money. And he would have to drill another well. So I was kind of raised in this, this interesting, uh, somewhat stable environment in some ways and somewhat unstable kind of under the, um, under the surface uh, world. But I, I went to uh, public elementary, middle, and high school. I went to a large public high school, uh, 2,800 students. I graduated, did very well in school, graduated second in my class. I'm still mad about that. Uh, Jim Snow, if you're out there somewhere, I, I, I owe you another tenth of a point that I've, so I could have won. Uh, and then I uh, went off to college at the University of Texas as petroleum engineering. So it was, I was a very traditionally educated person. And... Um, did your dad encourage you to get into, so you said uh, geological engineering, is that what it is? Uh, petroleum engineering. So, yeah. yeah. So um, did he encourage you to get into that? He actually didn't want me to go in the oil business. He thought it was too hard. But I was much more of a throwback to my grandfather and uncle who were depression babies. So I was always worried about being broke. And I, I was a different kind of oil person when I went into it. I was, I was um, always playing the other side of the cycle from him. I was a contrarian. He was an optimist. Uh, but he he discouraged me from going to the business. He thought it was too hard, and the business would never come back again. And what? Now, so pl place me in time here. When, when are you graduating from from college? Gra uh, graduating from high school in 1978, from college in 1982. 
I then had a deferred admit to the Harvard Business School, meaning I knew I was going, but I had to work for two years to, to return. And I went to work for a, a large oil company for a year and then a small oil company and then went back to Harvard Business School. So you go to Harvard Business School. Uh, what was that like? Well, it was a wake-up call. Um, two of the best years of my life. And you know, despite the uh, stereotypes, the, most of the people there were very friendly extremely smart, hardworking, a lot of middle class or uh, middle America kids. So it was, a, it was a wide diversity of people. But I very quickly figured out while in most of my life, um, I'd either been able to outsmart most people and I could outwork the ones I couldn't outsmart and vice versa. And I got there and it was very clear very early. There were people who were so much smarter than I was, I wouldn't gonna have a chance. And there were people who quite literally worked 20 hours a day or 22 hours a day. And I thought I worked hard. I had never, you know, it was, I was blown away. So it was a great wake up call for me that I needed to specialize. And so I specialized in energy and, and, but that, you know, I wasn't going to be the smartest guy in the room. And what actually was that, what was getting a Harvard MBA? Like at that point, maybe it's changed, but like, what, what did that actually mean? I had asked my brother-in-law, he'd gotten an MBA and I said, this is years ago, and I said, uh, "Oh, does that mean you? You know, they taught you how to start a business?" And he's like, "Well, no. It's more like we took, we did uh, case studies in, in like sort of how to manage, how management worked, or something like what? What is an well, MBA? Well, most MBAs even today are rooted in the 1950s and 60s and functional silos, and back when you were going to become a mid-level manager for General Motors. I mean, that's really where why the MBA was started, and because academia is so frozen." In strange ways, a lot of it's still that way. Now, um, I happen to be lucky to be at Harvard at a time where a young man named Bill Solomon uh, was just starting the entrepreneurship department with an older mentor, Howard Stevenson. And it was kind of the launch of what became, over the next 25 years, a transformation where much of Harvard's now targeted on entrepreneurship. Oh, so t- at this point now, Harvard, Harvard, MBA, Harvard MBAs are not just case studies for Walmart. No, it's, it's surprising how much is now around um, entrepreneurship. So how, so that's two years you were at, at Harvard? Is there two years. Um, and you come right back to Texas? What, what happens next? You didn't get sucked into the Northeast? No, I, although I came very close to going to work for a McKinsey partner named Jeff Skilling. And uh, instead, I wanted to start my own business. Had I gone to work for Skilling, who later became the CEO of Enron, and just yesterday got out of federal penitentiary uh, at age 65, I would have definitely been in a cell next to Jeff. Um, <laughs> but I was determined to start my own business. I had worked for a wonderful group called General Atlantic, then a fledgling, uh, what would have been called private equity, although probably no one even used that term, private equity firm. And today's a $50 billion institution. But I went to work for GA and um, they actually agreed to fund my startup out of Harvard. I later found out they thought I was going to fail, and they looked at the million dollars as just kind of a way to hire me to come back. Uh, but instead, I actually the, the business worked, and uh, I didn't have to go to work for McKinsey and Jeff Skilling and started my own oil and gas company. So I know you um, achieved pretty fantastic success at, oh, we at some incre- point. We were incredibly lucky. We took a million dollars and turned it into $500 million in profits in four years. So it was a perfect storm of everything going right. How, and, and what does that mean? I mean, f- like f- when I hear that, I mean, aside from like, okay, that's 500 times, 
But how does that happen? Like, what, what, what was the... Well, we, we had a terrific strategy. Um, I was lucky that I'd been at Harvard when the oil business was going to hell. So I didn't get wrapped up in that. I came out at the time when the business was at a low, which is the right time to get in that business. Um, I had a terrific strategy, hired some great people, and got really lucky. And then prices went up. So it was like everything multiplied on the upside. And then I at least had the, the uh, wisdom to sell at the, at the top. So you didn't get too greedy in it. No, way. because it's, it's, a, it's a business that has its ups and downs. I had seen that growing up, and I was determined to go out on an up. So how long did you stay in that, in that, in that business? Was a, that was a four- or five-year run. So by this point, I'm now 28 or 29. I've got far more money I think I'm ever going to need. And that's when I went to teach what I thought would be for one year at the University of Texas as a professor at the business school, as an adjunct professor. And uh, 30 some odd years later, I'm still a Socratic teacher now, now at the Acton School of Business. But um, uh, it, it was it turned into a long gig. So, you know, for so many people, the idea of getting to a place where you technically never need to work again before you're 30 is a dream on one hand, a very enviable, envious position to look at from, from afar in another. And also, um, it's sort of like a conundrum when I think about it. Like, how did you, how, what did that do to you psychologically? Like, you're, so you're, you know, you're still a young guy. You know, what was that like to be like, I, I technically, I, I could do whatever I want. Like, how did you find motivation? <laughs> well, and, I, and I'd always lived and still do live on not a lot of money. So I always, I'm a miser by, and that's not a good thing. I mean, I'm a hoarder. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I was always careful and remain careful. Uh, but I did have to think about what am I going to do next? And that was the reason to go teach. I thought I'll take a year. I'll lead all these case discussions. I'll uh, borrow the best ideas from my professors at Harvard. And maybe I'll think of what to do next. And so that ended up being, uh, I'm still doing a little in the oil business. Uh, went over to Russia with Jim Billington, the Librarian of Congress. Uh, this is about the time the whole wall starting to fall. So early 90s, early, early 90s, 80s. yeah, late 80s, early 90s. Um, I was one of the first Americans into Nizhny Novgorod in Russia. Ended up having 2,000 people selling uh, shampoo door to door in Russia as kind of a side project to prove that the Russians weren't serfs, and, and they weren't. Um, and, and then stumbled back into the energy business as a sideline business because I was really teaching and doing lots of philanthropic things. And ended up actually running a multi-billion-dollar investment firm in that, um, kind of as a as a hobby. So, what does that mean to, to run to run an investment firm? Like, what what did I actually whose whose money is it, and what's your job? A lot of it was was my money. A lot of it was a wealthy family in New York who believed in me. I actually worked for them the first couple of years for free, just because I liked them and thought it was fun. And um, over time, we ended up making an arrangement that allowed me to invest alongside them. May, gave me no pressure to find any deals, so I could only invest in good ones. I didn't have to invest in a certain amount of money. But the ability to do something very large if it came across. And um, I actually had a video conference with my old partners uh, yesterday. I mean, I still stay in touch, and I love them. And they're, they're great, great people. And so we had a great run for, gosh, a decade of, of building this firm. And it just, it means finding good oil and gas people, um, 
putting money alongside them. And then I was, I was taking drilling reports every morning. So I was a hands-on investor. I was more of an operator than an investor. But we had operations in the Gulf of Mexico, in the Rocky Mountains, in California, eventually in Australia. And, um, you know, really rebuilt that as I was teaching and doing education things. The oil business is so controversial in ways, if you even leave aside climate change as an issue. Which we should. Um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, because that, that's a rabbit hole. Um, but no, I just mean I'd like to leave it. I'd like to leave it aside completely. But go, we'll go on. And... <laughs> um, uh, it, it, it's the, the reason why I say it's so strange is because everyone drives, right. everyone utilizes hydrocarbons yep. in everything they do, every piece of plastic, every light switch. As Dan Jurgen said, I mean, it's the it's the story of the of the twentieth century and now the twenty first century. It, it remains a pillar of the modern economy. And anybody who thinks otherwise doesn't understand physics and economics because it's, it's going to be a pillar for a very, very long time. So what do you mean by that? Like, what's the physics part of that? Well, uh, and, and, and this, is, this is not my area of expertise, but I spent a lot of time in it. Um, when you look at even today's shale oil, or you look at windmills, or you look at solar, the energy intensity, meaning the amount of energy it takes to produce new energy is very high. And the economics of all of those at, at scale are somewhere between extremely difficult to, for most of them, an illusion. Will never happen. There's just the amount of energy you can pack into a gallon of gasoline is almost unimaginable. And, and the only exception of anything greater would be uh, a pound of uranium. And so that just the physics of that much energy in a small place that you can transport are hard to overcome with wind or solar or any other form. Yeah, it's always, it's like, I, I don't think, it's easy to forget that you got to store it. You're not going to always use it right when you get it. So so the fact that a barrel of oil can sit there as unused energy, not right. not going away or not you going to, to waste. You have to extract it, you have to store it, you have to convert it. Uh, you lose an enormous amounts of energy. I mean, one, of the, you know, one of the modern wonders is the is the jet engine, which is which of course is what we use to generate power from natural gas or coal or other things is a is a turbine engine. Uh, but you lose a lot of energy when you do that. It takes a lot of you lose a lot in the conversion of heat to um, rotation, and then on to electricity. So, you know, we're going to have coal and oil and natural gas around for a long time. That's not a political statement. I'm not in the industry anymore. That's just the way the physics work. It is so strange because when I think about um, yeah, just people's relationship to products that they that they rely on, it, it's such a strange thing because because like we have this situation where we all rely on petroleum for everything, and and we can't. And there's this just desire for a change, but it, it's also not even clear that the consequences of that change are what we would think they would be, even if it could happen. I, th I think as humans, we have deeply inside of us a longing for utopia. And, you know, in my case, I believe that utopia is heaven, so it's not on this earth. But I think we have a longing for that utopia on this earth, and it tends to get lots of people, tens of millions of people murdered and schemes that don't work. And But I think it's a natural human longing that if we could just do away with all of these things that are... Um, inconvenient or hard or difficult, well, you know, that's a natural longing. The problem is that's not the way the world works. 
we could just change human nature, everything would be all right. Right, straight, <laughs> straight in the crooked yeah, arrow of absolutely. man, right? Now, you, you, you come back to teaching, you're in your late 20s, but you've also been a very philosophical, you've been very involved in philosophical pursuits. Did that happen at that early age? Did that come later? You know, things like being on the board of National Review and... Well, and one of the other fortunate things was I, I got to be around enough uh, real intellectuals to realize I wasn't one, you know, <laughs> much as I might like. Just wrote someone an email today and said, I wish I'd listened to Bill Buckley when he told me, as I was messing with education reform at the university level, he said, uh, be careful, you're dealing with the cheese of some very big rats, <laughs> smart, articulate rats with powerful friends. And I, I laughed when he said that, and it's not nearly as funny now uh, as what I went through. But, but I, um, I'm being around Bill Buckley and Margaret Thatcher and lots of wonderful people that were real intellectuals made me realize it was nice to have a seat at the table and listen, but I'm not one. And, how, and, and, and you said being around. So what does that mean? Did you, how, how did you come to be around people like that? When, when, I had, uh, when it was clear that I'd been financially successful, I'd always been interested from... Like like most um, teens that find the way you and I found, you know, I read Atlas Shrugged and was indignant and ready to take on the world at 17 or 18 and, you know, stayed interested in those kinds of ideas. And so I wanted to help. I mean, when I made some money and I remembered that uh, one of my classmates had been a nephew of Mr. Buckley's. Now, at the time, I didn't realize that Mr. Buckley had like 600 nephews because there's so many brothers and sisters and, you know, the Buckley family was wonderfully everywhere. My classmate allowed me to, uh, gave me an introduction and I went to see Mr. Buckley and he said something that I thought was, he said, I'm going to help you get involved and I think you have a great future, but I don't want you to give anyone any money because we treat donors differently than we treat people on the inside. I want you to be a worker. And so I didn't give any money. For a long time, I became known as the person you wanted on the board that would ask hard questions. And, and then I saw how donors were treated, and it turned out to be really, really wise advice. Um, it was, it was, but then Mr. Buckley asked me at a, at a very young age, I think I was two or three decades younger than anyone else, to go on the board of National Review. And I had the great chance to travel around the world with him and, and you know, be around the National Review people. So uh, for someone who isn't familiar with Bill Buckley or who he is. Just give me the background on him. So William F. Buckley, at age 26, I believe, out of Yale, uh, wrote a book called God and Man at Yale that really um, pulled back um, the covers from the modern American university and, and said, what you think is a Yale alumnus isn't what's going on at the school. We're losing a lot of the moral fabric. And then went on to start National Review magazine, which uh, really was the define the tent for the modern conservative from the late 50s on. Uh, became the favorite magazine of Ronald Reagan um, and, and really was, um, Mr. Buckley was the convener. He was the person that could get everyone in the room, define who couldn't be in the room. If you were a John Bircher, which were the, you know, the extremist or a racist or a, that wasn't okay. And um, he, he defined the tent and for, for years. And you know, one of the things I loved about him and I wasn't a close friend. I was, I mean, he was a hero to me and I got to sit next to him is he always went to the weakest person in the room and put them under his arm. And I was often the weakest person. So the fact there'd be a big room and he would kind of take me under his arm and sit me, sit me next to him. But then I watched him do it with other people. And I noticed when he died 
almost every obituary, whether it was written by the great writer George Will or Bill McGurn, so these terrific writers he had brought up as young people, every obituary started when I was 19 and a nobody and Bill Buckley picked me up at the airport. <laughs> so his great legacy wasn't even his ideas of the magazine. It was all the young people that he reached out to and helped, like he helped me with kindness, for no other reason than you know, that he was a kind person. I might be one of the only uh, people that is constantly working and thinking about free enterprise that has not yet read Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> <laughs> I said I told that to John Mackey, and he said, "I can't believe that you haven't read that book. I, that's shocking to me. Don't tell anyone else that." Well, <laughs> I, my wife and son read it recently, and they, it, you know, it inflamed both of them. So I'm, I'm trying. I may, I may, I probably shouldn't recommend people read it because it tends to. Um, <laughs> for certain people, it sets off a fire inside. <laughs> um, so. So when you come back, so at this point, so you've come back and you're teaching at, at UT. Yes. And you have already got, had these experiences with Bill Buckley at this point. You've already traveled. And, I'm still kind of traveling with him okay. and doing things with him. I mean, for, for a very long time. But, but I have had some of those. I've been to, or I'm going to and have been to uh, Russia with Jim Billington. Um, I'm dabbling about in business again, but mainly spending a lot of my time teaching. And, and, and building the entrepreneurship department at the University of Texas with a lot of entrepreneurs like myself who were all started teaching. And then by the year 2000, seven of us were teaching 25% of all the elective hours in the business school. I think they had a hundred and something faculty members and a handful of us were teaching and, 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 you know, won the teacher of the year award, not me, but all of our group, 11 out of 11 years and really built this wonderful group of entrepreneurs who love to teach and, you know, had hundreds and hundreds of young people a year coming through the classes. So what is an entrepreneur? Like, what's your definition? Well, I like my old professor, Bill Solomon's uh, and Howard Stevenson's definition was the relentless pursuit of opportunity without regard to resources controlled. So you're relentless, you care about the opportunity, doesn't matter what you have, you're going to go get what you need. Has that has your definition or the way you've thought about what entrepreneurship is changed and evolved over the years as you've taught it and because and as you've did you have a like a kind of defined sense of I'm going to be an entrepreneur and I know what that means when you did it because of being at Harvard I mean well I, I think people do my experience is, is having uh, taught a lot of young entrepreneurs is there are really three different drives. Um, the drive for me, and this is true for a pretty large segment, is um, was to overcome a father figure. I mean, there's just something, it doesn't matter how good, my father was a great father, it doesn't matter how good a father you are, there's this natural competitiveness, particularly with a young male, but often with a, with a daughter too, you know, to, to go out there and best their parent. And um, I found through the years, that's usually a positive, aggressive force that then once you're really successful must be dealt with. So there's a price to pay for that aggression and that wanting to go achieve, and it's it's there's a positive element and a negative element, but it generally leads to success. I mean, something because you're moving forward. There's a a second type um, that I found later, and these are people who've had a tremendous adversity in their life. Um, might be a Navy SEAL, uh, might be someone who lost a parent or a sibling at a young age, might have had a, a terrible health. For those people, every day is a good day. 
They go out and work hard. They get things done. Carpe diem. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they've seen the worst, and, and, and that's a really positive. Now, they've paid a price. But that, and then the third person, the type of person we've seen, and this one troubles me. These don't become entrepreneurs. It's the person with the perfect resume, valedictorian, um, quarterback, or, or she was the captain of the tennis team, you know, went to college and made straight A's. And that person will go on to look for prestige, but they can't afford to do what they really love and want to do to find a calling because they have to defend the mask. They have to defend the, the image. And, you know, they, they just can't. They've been taught that prestige matters more than anything. And so I think, as I've thought about entrepreneurship, I think, it, I think of it more these days as a hero's journey, as going out and struggling and overcoming to find the holy grail. But in the end, it's not about the grail. It's about how the hero changes. And I think it's a battle where the entrepreneurs, both internally and externally, are seeking competence and escaping prestige. I uh, we talked about this before. Um, this company, Emerge in Order, is my first time starting and running. I, lo- I love a, the, the a name business. Too. Emerge in Order is a great name. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's it's whenever anybody asks me, so you know. What does this mean? What's your philosophy? I see you have all these opinions. It's like emergent order. That's my philosophy. That, that is a philosophy. It's a terrific philosophy. Um, but I, uh, myself and Josh and Lisa, you know, we started this and I've thought of, as I've met people like you and I think of, and I think about like, I often like reflect like, you know, even what you've just described as the, the motive, some of these motivating forces, I, I don't exactly see myself in, in any of those three exactly. And, and it's, and it's weird. And I think, in some respects, I'm not the same type as a lot of the truly successful entrepreneurs I know. So what do you think drives you? I, so I have always been a project person, an artist. Okay. And um, so my, my, one of my favorite people in the whole world is my grandfather, my dad, my mom's dad. And he was... He was entrepreneurial, but not necessarily an entrepreneur. So he, he was a, a, like an artist and an architect and, and, um, and yet not trained in either. And he had this diverse uh, set of like, bi- like businesses and, and life experiences. And he was the life of the party. And he was the fastest, funniest person you'd meet. And when he died, there was lines around the, 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 the church in Philadelphia for hours of people he had met over the years. And, um, and the other person in my life that I looked up to and was my, is my dad. And my dad is, um, is a surgeon, but he's also South Philadelphia from South Philly. And, and he raised me at doing projects. And so I learned how to like lay tile when I was like nine years old. And so every, since I was little, as long as I could remember, I wanted to either be a builder or an architect or a designer or, a, or, and then, and then ultimately my interest in drawing and art took over. So I was always coming up with projects in my head, something I wanted to do or make. Right. And, uh, and they weren't necessarily business ideas. They weren't business ideas, really. Um, they would sometimes be inventions when I was little. Um, even if they were ridiculous things, but, um, but see, I, I, I think that that is, at least a different subset of an entrepreneur for me. And, and, and whether it's an artist or an inventor, it's seeking beauty and to create for the sake of creation. 
And the, 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 the question or the place where that can veer off course at times, and, and you're still a creator, and I would put Elon Musk in this category, would be I'll invent and I'm not worried at the end about the invention being worth more than the sum of the parts, today at least. So I, I'm going to be an artist, because to me a true artist creates beautiful work, art, and they don't really care if it sells or not. And, and they'll, if it sells 100 years after their death, I mean, that's fine. A promotional artist, nothing wrong with this, but, you know, as a great salesperson, then they'll sell junk for a lot of money as art and make it work. So I, I just don't think there are many true artists in the world and many true inventors who invent for the beauty of it and actually get something done. So that, I think that could very well be a subset, but it's a rarer one that I found when I said kind of overcoming a father, that's that desire for freedom. That's that Atlas shrugged push. And, you know, I want to be free. Well, you have to want to be free from something. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's usually that father figure you want to free yourself from. But the, the search for beauty, I think, is a rarer type. The thing that I think unlocked. So, when, so I worked for years in Viacom and, uh, and I was still kind of entrepreneurial inside of Viacom coming up with projects and pitching different initiatives and things like that. But the thing that unlocked the possibility of me even trying to start my own company with my, you know, with Josh and Lisa was, was actually when Mateo was born. And I think maybe this speaks to this prestige part or the, the, the this going away. I, you know, I went to film school. I wanted to be a director. I just wanted to make movies. And that's all. And, I, and like every year that went by that I didn't feel like I was getting closer to making movies, I was like incurring this sort of psychic debt of why am I not, oh, and my buddy just got a multi-picture deal at Paramount and what, why am I not doing that? Even as I was climbing up inside of Viacom. And when he, when Mateo was born, it reshuffled how I thought about my priorities in such a fundamental way that my own judgment or my own desire to be successful like kind of went away and it actually in the for the first six months of it it was i was very disoriented about what i cared about right you're redefining what success meant and when i came out of it i found that and i still feel this way to this day and in some ways i feel like it more than ever that i could i could live in a in a in a in a mobile home with my with my with my family and be perfectly happy. And so it kind of unlocked the, the, the ability for me to like go after something that where I could fail right. in a way that like I couldn't before. And I think I've sort of been slowly discovering that entrepreneurial love. I've always been sale. the other thing my dad would always say is I've always been a salesman since I was little. He's like, you could sell, you know, you could sell me my own socks. <laughs> so well, that, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I think that type, though, that that's getting closer to the Navy SEAL. I, it's not just because I've seen the worst of life. It's I, life's going to be fine. And, and and again, I think you know my current definition would be more about being a calling, finding your gifts, sharing them with the world, using them to overcome challenges. I think that's a more positive view of entrepreneurship. That's not what I see that drives most people to start a business, though. That's, uh, to me, that's, that's, that's a healthier view and the one I wish I'd had earlier. But most of the people I have that really want to do something successful making money, um, it, it requires sacrifices that often don't come from something that pure. I, um, so, you're, so you're studying, you're, you're, you're teaching this, these ideas. 
How do you go about teaching some of this stuff? Yeah, like when God, you got yeah. into this, how did you? Well, I almost jumped in because the, the Socratic method at Harvard, the one we use at the Acting School of Business and the one we use at Acting Academy, is you, know, you never make a declarative sentence. You, know, you, never, you never say something or lecture. You can only ask questions. So I didn't go, I didn't start teaching to, to tell someone something. I started teaching to find out something out of curiosity about myself, about the world, and I'm still that way. So it's a form of inquiry of believing that when you walk in a room with 30 people, you're not telling them anything. You're there to learn from the group. And I, and I still feel that way, and it's, it's a wonderful way to learn. And it's why we attract so many great entrepreneurs to the act and to, to teach it's because you're not teaching, you're learning. And the, and the Harvard MBA had this Socratic it, method? It, it, it's the founder of the Socratic method. And really, all the other Socratic schools in one way or another were born from people leaving Harvard to go be more pure. There's only a handful of really Socratic schools. But that method, that case method, uh, got its start at Harvard and was borrowed really from the world of medicine and law and adapted to become what, what we think of today as the Socratic method. How long were you at UT? We were at UT for about 10 years. Um, we had built a successful program and um, begun to ask a lot of questions about if seven of us could teach most of the people, what was everyone else doing there? And, and really innocently asking, trying to figure it out. And um, the fact we'd won all the teaching awards and were asking those questions, uh, I'd say we got along very well with all the teachers Tenure or not tenured, no matter what, we had yeah. a wonderful following. But there were people that didn't really like us being around. And so it's a long story, not worth going into, but we basically either quit or were fired in mass, depending on which story you'd like. I, I'd, like to, I'd like to think that we were fired. They like to think we quit. Uh, we had no choice. We left. And that started the Acton School of Business. We, we said as a group, gosh, we've just stranded about half the people at the MBA because they came for our program, but they couldn't take it to the second year. So we had had five or 600 people sign up thinking they were coming. And we said, you know, just as a moral obligation, let's teach one class off campus and we'll do it for free. You have to, you have to buy your cases. It's a hundred dollars. We'll give you the hundred dollars back if you finish. Probably nobody will show up, but at least we've kind of done our bit. So a group of us agreed to do that. 130 people showed up. And it, it was where? 40 hours a week. Uh, we were doing it at, at uh, St. Ed's, a little college just right down the street from where we are right now in South Austin. Well, people drove from College Station, from Houston, from Waco. Faculty came from other schools. We had this grand following we didn't know we had. And so we taught the class. It was a blast. And then we had this epiphany. And said, you know, we've always said the first year the MBA was pretty worthless. We have the second year, let's just have an MBA. And that was the birth of the Acton MBA. Now, we didn't know later that you can't just have an unaccredited MBA. You and I were talking about regulations before the broadcast started. And it turns out it's illegal to teach an unaccredited MBA in the state of it, Texas. It's illegal. It's illegal. You will go to jail. For teaching it or for, or for giving somebody the diploma? Oh, no, yeah, you can't say the words. <laughs> so so I, come to, I come to your... Uh, you rent a little. You rent an office space. I come there. You you I teach say, me things and about I say, life, I say, and, and that's is, illegal. And I say, John, this is not accredited. I'm not going to give you a degree. It's called an MBA. I'm going to give you a piece of paper, but it's not. You know, I'm, we're in no way accredited, which is what we said. 
That's he will, illegal. He will go to jail for that. Now, I didn't know that. I'm trying so we, not to have my blood boil hearing so that. We, I've we, never had heard a whole, we had a whole room full of people <laughs> that were going to pay us $30,000 a year to execute this. We said we weren't accredited. And you, you might imagine that somebody might have turned us into the authorities if you were a, a, thought in terms of conspiracies. But however the authorities found out, they called me. Um, and I thought, well, we're done. So I got on the small little plane I flew, and I flew back up to Abilene to the campus where my great-grandfather uh, was buried, a little small Baptist school up there. And I went in to see the president and um, a wonderful guy named Craig Turner, and I never met him. And Craig stuck his hand out and said, gosh, I've heard so many great things about Acton. Uh, our, our very first year, we had won um, the best MBA program in the country from Princeton Review. So we had all this press. And he said, I just, just glad you're here. And I said, well, Craig, this is your lucky day. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, I know there's no way you can give us an accreditation. I mean, I, you know, it take a year and you have to get the faculty together and it's going to have. And he stuck out his hand. He said, you got a deal. And I said, well, when can you do it? And he said, by one o'clock today, I'll call a faculty meeting. And I said, well, how much do we have to pay? And he said, whatever you want. And so I went home that day. Because, you know, the state had told us to take down our website, and we were done. And I told Laura, I said, I think it was a God thing. And her response, I love, was, what exactly do you think isn't a God thing? <laughs> Which I laughed. And, you know, we've a, a bet, one of my best friends took us to an office building he had and said, I can have this demoed in six weeks. I can have a, a classroom built for you. And the acting MBA was in business. You, um, we don't need to go into details about the, Perhaps just because the 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 scars will resurface, but you um you didn't just leave you you had you really went to uh, you really went up against uh, an, an entrenched political machine with this with um within the school system. It did, well, didn't well that well that happened, but then later on uh, with Governor Perry, I got really involved in higher ed reform, which is has to be the greatest. Of all the many mistakes I've made, had to be high on the mistake list, um, and that turned out to be a. Um, I learned I'm not very good at politics. Let's just put it that way. Was this after? This was after you had yeah, left. That was uh, Governor Perry and I started working on higher ed reform in 1998 when he was lieutenant governor, and continued to work on it. You know, through I mean, up until very recently, and so that was a 15 year um, project that we were really working on. How do you bring better teaching to universities? How do you lower the cost? How do you increase the quality? Um, turned out to, as you're alluding to, be a big public fight um, with the University of Texas, which I wasn't trying to pick a fight with. It was This was about all the universities in the state exposed major corruption at the university in terms of handing out admissions to politicians' kids and rich donors. Uh, the president was fired over it. And, and, and that corruption is still going on today. Didn't do one bit of good. All the corruption is still there. The extra costs are there. Um, I'm an alumnus of the University of Texas. I, I love the place. I mean, it's as far as it's an institution. It's not a person to me, but it's uh, like many universities. It's not the only one. Um, that world's going to change eventually. But but anyway, that was that was fighting against windmills because we had no idea the power we were up against. And this was after you had set up Acton MBA oh, yeah, and got yeah. accredited. And- oh, long after that. Yeah, yeah. This was this was in, in, the only way those were two were connected is that I was you know I knew a lot about teaching, and had won a lot of teaching awards even later, and so it was really hard to say that I didn't know anything about education. Most business people get involved, and you say, well, 
how would you know? It's like, well, you know, because <laughs> I've been doing this a long I've been time. Doing a long now. time, and I got a lot of awards. A lot. So, so not that I was, the, you know, but I, I had credentials that the average outsider didn't have. And um, but but it's a you know, and, and education, both K twelve and university education, um, is a messy thing. I mean, you know, you and I were talking before the broadcast started that. People now expect schools to do things that families used to do and that churches used to do and that, and, you know, that institutions can't do. And um, you know, we expect, we, we built the university in the 40s and 50s to be this mega university uh, that would bring back the GIs from World War II and cure cancer. And you know, we just put too many demands on an institution and gave it a lot of money. I mean, both K-12 and, and you know, it's, it's an institution. So it's not a it's it's not again a unicorn that you can make do anything you want. What is the point of education? So uh, a, a economist friend I really like is a guy named Brian Kaplan, yep. and he's uh, written this right book yep. uh, called "The Case Against Education," which I haven't actually gotten to read yet, but I've heard him give like lectures and interviews about the book, and he makes a lot of cases uh, about. Um, you know, he makes kind of an empirical data argument that essentially the only real value you get it's, out of college it's sorting. is it's, yeah. it's sorting, it's picking the smart people from the non-smart people and not much value added. Yeah, like, for example, there was this, um, uh, for, for those that have, are not familiar with this argument, there's a theory that says, well, the purpose of a college education is human capital. Like you're investing in yourself and your knowledge and your skills. And yet what Brian lays out is that the benefits of the of the diploma require the piece of paper that if you've if you've gone to three and three quarters year of a of a college degree but you somehow drop out at the end and don't get the diploma you do not get the financial benefits or the income increases or the that if you if you just spent spent that last extra couple months where you're not learning anything which mean which suggests at least that I, I think that, by the way, that's true, and he was doing a study, and it's, it's an empirical study, but of college degrees in general, um, I had a good friend or a friend recently that's a Stanford graduate that his whole goal is just to get his kids in Stanford so they can immediately drop out because for elite schools, it's just acceptance. You know, so, so for a non-elite school, I want to show for four years I can actually work hard right? and that I'm reasonably smart. For the elite schools, the credentials just I got in. So once you got in, now it's like, oh, I didn't even, I, yeah, I, mean, I didn't he, even need it. <laughs> he was, he was very clear, and he wasn't kidding. For his two children, the value of being at Stanford for four years was a net negative, a serious net negative, a waste of their time to be at Stanford for four years. So that this is, you know, this is the credentialism argument and yeah, the sorting argument for education. The, one of the funniest examples that Brian gives is, he says, you know, and Brian's an active college professor at George Mason. Mason University. He says, uh, so when they're, when your students show up to class and for some reason you're not there because of a prior engagement or a sickness or something like that, and so they don't have to take the class, a class that they are paying thousands of dollars for, for that class, they're not upset that they got gypped. They're, they're happy. They're excited. <laughs> and that, that in and of itself, like, woohoo, I didn't need to go to class. It's like you're well, paying thousands of dollars and you're happy not to use it. Like that's, that is another thing with these well, sort of I'll interesting I'll one of our major state examples. universities and not the one located here in Austin. Um, there is a whole industry 
across the street from the university where you pay twice, you pay again to go be taught by adjuncts what you get, what you've just paid for and you go take the, the test over on the university campus, but the teaching is so bad that you actually pay adjuncts to teach you across the street. Uh, it, the uh, University of Phoenix has gotten really, I'm sorry, University of Phoenix, University, uh, Arizona State um, has gotten very good at, at high quality online. 80% of their students now, the freshmen, sophomores, will not walk across the street to go to a campus lecture. They would rather take the courses online. So it's same what what, what Kaplan's saying. It's it's you know the the teaching is a net negative. Um, the, the distinction I make, John, is I don't think about education at all. I think about learning. So how can you convince someone to go out and want to learn? And if you need an expert to learn something, that's terrific. But it's learner driven, not an institution educating you. And I think when you flip it and you think about it being all about the learner. And there's a, there's a great old quote, I taught him, I taught him, but he didn't learn anything. What in the world can that sentence mean? Right. How could you teach someone and learn? So I like to flip it and think about how do I get someone engaged enough to want to learn and ask them questions? Once you do that in this world, you can learn anything. I really feel for educators because, and you know, you've worked so hard to try to bring a sense of measurement to performance right right and how do you do that how do you measure how do you measure if someone has learned if you how do you confirm that they've learned in a way that can somehow be replicatable so that you can judge it like i was when i was looking at some of your um uh you had uh, these sort of seven solutions right and well, you are going back to the old higher ed stuff. I'm impressed. And, you know, so you said this, like one. The f- first solution was, you know, measure, you know, measure teaching efficiency and effectiveness. And there's this dichotomy that's really weird because it, 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 it where activists, especially in K through 12, will simultaneously say, we need to give teachers more room to do what they do, and we can't be expected to measure whether they're good or not. Right. I, I've, heard the, I've, had, I've heard those two things come out of the same folks. It tends to be, people, tends to be a, 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 um, activists who don't like, say, school choice. They say, well, I don't like vouchers because you're, gonna, you're just going to deplete the public schools of resources. What we really need is we just need these, our current schools to have better resources and for the teachers to be able to do what they do well. And when I ask, well, how are you going to measure if they're doing it well? They say, well, we, how do you, you can't do that. How do we do that? So it's like, I don't even, uh, how, do you, how, how do you think about that since this was obviously something you put a lot of thought into? Well, so we're, so we're it, it, it changes a bit whether you're on the higher ed side or the K-12 side. So we're on the higher ed side now. Yeah. And it's funny because the seven solutions that caused all this you know, uproar, um, anybody in business that looked at them, or running any kind of institution. It's not money-making. If you ran a not-for-profit and looked at them, you'd say, well, of course you're going to measure effectiveness. Of course you're going to pay people for performance. Of course you're going to... I mean, it was all things that were so common sense. Yeah. I was stunned. Let me read them. So, yeah. so your seven solutions for... So, and just so I understand, what, what, what was this the solution to? The governor asked me, he said, look, you, you guys have been incredibly successful at the higher ed level of people. They love you. They've learned a lot. If you were going to kind of go change universities, what would you change? And I said, we want much better research. 
higher quality, and we and we want um, better teaching. Because what else are you going to do at a university but do research and teach? So your seven solutions towards that end were one was measure teaching efficiency and effectiveness with the goal of improving the quality of teaching. Two was publicly recognize and reward extraordinary teachers. How dare you? Three was split research and teaching budgets to encourage excellence in both. What was, what's that about? What was that? Well, later on, when we finally got the data, and, and because I'd been on the inside at, at, at UT, I knew the data, and I'd ask enough other, at other universities. And by the way, this isn't just UT, right? This is everybody. Yeah. I mean, I went, not, to, I went to uh, Penn State University. Yeah, and I can promise you, Penn State, Michigan, Ohio State, all the same. So this is not about, I just happened to have the data at UT. So we actually got the data for how many classes people taught, what their students thought about them, and what they were paid. And, and I'm, I'm remembering this now from you know, years back, but this is going to be pretty close. So the university had roughly 4,000 people teaching something. Um, the adjuncts, the people like me that were doing most of the teaching, were doing 60% of the teaching, were paid um, oh, was something like 14% of the budget. So if that was okay... If that so, wasn't okay, so, if that wasn't okay, so you shouldn't be So 60% of the teaching is getting 14% right. of the financing. So if that's not okay, then you shouldn't be doing it. If it's okay and you just hire 40% more people, you can run the whole school for about 28 cents on the dollar. And this is an institution that's spending a couple of billion dollars a year. So we said, okay, so then you look at the top researchers. And we were always paid for being anti-research. Not true at all. Love research. Um, the top 10% of the faculty, 400 of the 4,000, brought in hundreds of millions of dollars of funded research, scientific research, cancer, engineering. So they were, in a sense, an income generator oh for the school. Oh, my gosh. I mean, incredibly profitable if you want to think about it that way. My uh, uh, Lisa's cousin, Paula, is an enormously successful disease uh, researcher, uh, and she's brought in hundreds of millions. These are real scientists. Yeah, doing huge stuff for the now, CDC. here's what's interesting. That group actually teaches a lot, too which is surprising. you think they'd be too busy, but they actually teach a lot and bring in a lot of money. So then you start to ask this question, what's everyone else do? <laughs> so that's why you want to measure them differently, right? It turns out, again, I'm remembering this from memory, but that 800 of the faculty at the University of Texas taught zero or one student a year and brought in no outside research income. <laughs> now, this is what started the explosion because this is before we found out about all the emissions this, this so when you like, say measure teacher efficiency and of effectiveness, you're working with a fairly crude level oh, of measurement. Like, I, do you teach any students right. at all? And so once we got the data, <laughs> we were just stunned. That number, by the way, that was $500 million a year was being paid to these 800 people. And that's more than the university took in in tuition. Well, what were they? Were they like writing books and papers or doing publishing or something? We don't know. To this day, I don't know. That was the question. It's like, they may be doing something incredibly valuable. I'm open to that. Let's, let's ask. And that's when everything blew up. So, I, you know, to this day, I don't know. Now, having been on the inside, a lot of committee meetings, a lot of, you know, there's just, when you don't measure things and you don't run something efficiently, there's just lots of little bits of slop. And, and, you know, a lot of where I think the political correctness comes from is just people with too much time on their hands. And so I, I don't know what those 800 people were doing, but they weren't bringing in outside funding. And you could say, well, they were writing their own stuff. Well, yeah, but 
they were doing research on microaggressions on in what? safe spaces. Yeah, on what? And, and you know, and we could even argue that research on microaggression is terrific. I mean, I, I, I'm not taking that stand. I mean, I, right. my sure. political views aside, but we need to know what it is, right? There's a lot of it going on, and so um, we don't know. And, and so these, they, you know, so that, that's what solution four. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, then solution four was require evidence of teaching skills for tenure. So. Well, that's that sounds tough. This is well documented that, you know, at a major research university, teaching well for most places is actually a net negative. You'll be knocked down for that. So the question is, how many research papers have you written? Not of the scientific time, usually only in some disciplines, usually to get published in a journal. No one reads. So this is a 50 to 75 billion dollar year business in America writing research articles about things no one reads that, that a handful of people will read, that's how the professoriate get rewarded and get promoted and get tenure. And so we were just saying, you can t- keep doing that. I mean, that's the, the faculty runs the school. But why don't we also see if the people can teach? If you're going to have them teaching, let's have some measurement of the effectiveness of teaching and let's reward that. The, uh, so number five was use results-based contracts with students to measure quality. Well, and this is what's important. You ask about how to measure things. And you know, most of the things that are interesting, you can't measure. I mean, that's what, the, that's what the, at the K-12 level, the state tests try to do. And it's just memorization, and you forget it. It doesn't matter much. Yeah, we've got Google now. Yeah, I, our system at, at, at the Acton MBA was pretty simple. We made very clear promises about what you would learn and be able to do. And then we asked students at the end, did we deliver? And we graded on a forced curve, so we couldn't give a, we couldn't give all A's to get good ratings. And we said, if nothing else, the university let's just make very clear promises in writing, and let's ask them if we did what we said. And and you can only give twenty um, percent A's, you know, thirty percent B's, so many C's, so many so so you're going to grade on a forced curve. And you're, because now it's up to where 91% of the kids at Harvard University get an A. Uh, this is a, a diversion from the numbers list, although it is relevant to this measurement. What does that explain? I want to understand this idea of a forced curve because I hear, I've heard, you know, everybody hears like it's graded on a curve. Right. So what does that mean? Like walk me through is, what it, that means. Well, it, it just says, so, so, you know, we've got in our mind and normally A, B, C, D, F, F's a failure, D's terrible. I want some distinction of quality. And so we'll call them one through five. Let's take away. We're not trying to shame people there at the bottom. The, the important thing is everybody's got a hierarchy of what you're good at. So let's find out if John's great at sales and Jeff's great at operations. Let's make that transparent. I can improve my relative standing sum in sales, but I've probably got a gift. And if my gift's plumbing and your gift is drywall or, or medicine or whatever. So, so let's actually measure where people are on a curve to give them some distinction of what they do well and where their gifts are to get better at that. And so that, that's, that's the idea of a forced curve is not to shame people at the bottom, it's to highlight people at the top. So I think what makes America great is, is there's, there's thousands of pecking orders. And if you're the best plumber in Austin, you're doing better than probably the average Harvard graduate in Austin. If you're a world-class plumber, you're doing great. And, and the, the trick Especially is not, right now, big time. Yeah. I mean, so, so the, the, that's the idea of a forced curve is tell me what I, show me what I'm really good at. Because there's a part of that when I hear it, it sounds like a, a kind of artificial zero-sum game. Like, well, wait a second. If there's actually happens to be like several people who are, you know, or, 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 or if, the per, if the distribution of excellence is 
not a, against that curve. If well, like you have ten students, it's only it's only and, yeah, it's only zero sum if you have one pecking order. Okay, so, so you're you saying it just, distributes across a lot of different. So I, I learned this at Harvard Business School because yeah, explain Har- this Har- out. well, Harvard grades on the force curve, and so uh, the top ten percent are excellent, the bottom thirty percent are low pass, and everybody else is in the middle. And so you're scared to death. I mean, I knew I was the admissions mistake when I went. So I knew I was going to get all low. You have to get four low passes and you get kicked out. Well, nobody ever gets kicked out because everyone's good at something of the eight classes and everyone's somewhat deficient in something. And you work really hard because you don't want to be at the bottom of anything. You have this realization you actually aren't as good as some people at some things. And that's, and you know what? So it's that's, not like the over. It's not really a, a concept for, a, that's as applicable for like an overall grade. It's really right, this right. sense of a, almost like trying to surface your comparative advantage. Right. See, we we could have a whole argument on the forced, the Rankin Yank that Enron used and General Electric used that we're going to fire the bottom ten percent of employees. We can have a whole argument whether that makes sense or not, but that's different than having eight or ten or in America. 5,000 different pecking orders and finding out which one you're really good at. And I'm when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about find out which pecking order force rank those because you know what? The market does that. The market force ranks by how many customers want to come see us. And the great thing about finding your calling is you attract great opportunities. You, I mean, you're going to have people don't go to you to make poor films, right? They go to you to make beautiful films, and yeah, that's what I you hope want. So. <laughs> you want people that want to come for you for the hard ones, not the easy ones. And so that's what being at the top of the pecking order, it gets you working with other people at the top that get the hard opportunities. You or you, you know, I strongly recommend you find some intersection where there's almost no one competing, like oh. trying to be a free market filmmaker. <laughs> that, no, well, that's, that's, no, no, that was my that was my entrepreneurial scam. Like I've got no, an idea. I'm going to do something nobody else wants listen, to do. Listen, I went in energy at Harvard because everybody else wanted to be in high tech, and I'm like, you know, all the really smart people are in high tech. I believe I'll go somewhere else where I can compete with my friends who aren't as smart as the high tech guys. Um, I, so, yeah, I way, think it's brilliant. I um I was always a nerd. I still have the scars of of high school nerddom, and so I've never had. I've literally never had the confidence to go up to the prettiest girl so man did i luck out with lisa because wow i shouldn't i still don't understand how that happened but i but it applies to me in every way it's like so i i'm always like no everybody's going after that well why would i want to do that i'm going to go after this other interesting thing that i like that isn't i'm not going to comment about laura because i don't want her to know how lucky i am i don't want her to wake up Uh, okay, so then let's see. We've got number I, I, six. Oh, go I, ahead. I think this is important, though, and the reason it's important is there is an attack on competence in the world right now, on, on America. That you know, there's there's something unfair about being competent in something, and and there's plenty of unfairness in the world. Don't get me wrong. There's lots of unfairness, and it's real, but it's not unfair necessarily by definition to be at the top of a pecking order. And I and I think that's an important thing. That this idea that it's it's good to be good at something because you can help other people it is an important concept. Yeah, it's this. Um, I'm, well, we're going to get I want to talk a lot more about this, too. This this um, this challenge of uh, of, of this egalitarianism um, that doesn't survive grade school kids sniff sniff test. Well, uh, right. You know, so yeah, the, the, the the everyone gets a trophy. But I want to get through the last the, the, okay. the last of the seven list. And then right. I want to talk about um about uh, about middle school 
So the other, the last two you had here were put state funding directly in the hands of students. That, that means hand them, don't give the scholarships to the school, give the scholarship to students and let the students vote with their feet. Like the GI Bill. Right. Con- incredibly controversial, by the way. <laughs> Everyone loves the GI Bill, except that we should never replicate it no, anywhere no, else. No, because we'd like it all to come to the president's office, and we'll decide where it should go. I know. Whenever I hear people uh, hate on like the idea of school vouchers, it's like, so you hated the GI Bill then? Yeah. No, the GI Bill was great. It's like, well, that's all the school vouchers is. It's like the GI Bill. You just The GIs come home, you give them a thing, they go to whatever school they want. <laughs> I don't get it. Um, Number seven, create results-based accrediting alternatives. And we've talked about this a lot. Yeah, yeah and that's just, I mean, the, the, the accreditors, and to be fair, they're, they really are doing kind of the best they can, but you can't achieve excellence through rules. I mean, rules just, you know, the, long, the more rules you have doesn't necessarily make for excellence. It does make for due process. I mean, you can follow processes, and occasionally process will lead to improvements. But there is the, the accreditors today are divided into geographical monopolies at the university level. And so there's no competition among accreditors. And what that does is, even if the accreditors are doing a good job, if you're inside a university and you don't want any change, you say, oh, that's a great idea, John, but oh, our accreditor won't let us. You don't even call the accreditor, right? You just blame, because they're this black box that might someday come shut you down. And so it becomes kind of an excuse not to innovate. What is an accreditor? What is this? When somebody when somebody says the school is accredited or when you started acting and the state was like, we're going to throw you in jail because you're not accredited. Okay. So this is an area where I, I do know a lot about university accreditation. I'm, I've read the state statutes, but I'm a long way from an expert. So there's two different things. The state certifies like a license. You can braid hair. So the state, you know, or you can, you know, do something. You can, yeah, be, a you can be a plumber. Right. So... The certification of the state is like that, and that's what the state does. The accreditors came about after the GI Bill because the government's handing out lots of money, and there are diploma mills. Now, by the way, there's plenty of diploma mills today that are not-for-profit universities. that are So you can be a poor university, for-profit, not-for-profit, but there were abuses. And so the government said somebody has to say who's good and who's bad. They've got this private group of accrediting co- groups. We're going to let you hand out the money. Well, you and I might say initially, that's great, it's not the government. The problem is, if you give that group a monopoly, now it's everyone on every church committee, homeowners association board, or country club board you've ever known that wants to have dictatorial powers, and they're in a private entity, and there's nothing you can do. I mean, they have, there's no oversight. And so in America today, at the higher ed level, the federal government has, by law, given a geographic monopoly to a group of volunteers—basically, they're paid, but they're paid by the universities. Which to, is right away weird. Right, right. I mean, it's, so it, you're, it, it, yeah, you're, you're paid, and they're staffed largely by volunteers. Again, most of them trying to do a good job. But there's all these conflicts of interest, and um, you have a monopoly. And that's how higher education is accredited. Now, K-12 accreditation— Anyone can start a K-12 accreditor. There's hundreds of them. Um, that's a totally different, and it's state by state. It's a totally different animal. But the higher ed is a geographic monopoly controlled, funded by the federal government. It reminds me a lot of, there's a new book out about the history of um, American medical care and the role of the American Medical Association. So you have the AMA charged, even though it's a private, nonprofit organ. 
nonprofit, for profit, who cares? It's a tax designation. Right. right? It's a right, private right. organization. Yeah, the NFL's not for profit. So yeah, well, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the nonprofit, for profit thing is the biggest like right. uh, social signaling scam of all time. Absolutely. But, um, it's like, okay, so one business accepts customers, the other business accepts customers and donors. Yeah. Therefore, it's a nonprofit. <laughs> it's like, right. Um, but they were, uh, the AMA was charged with uh, licensing for doctors. So now you had this, and then they had all these weird things that they believed were important to protect doctors from, including doctors having their own mixed practices that sold their own kind of group doctor practice insurance, like these prepaid things. And, and, the, and so the AMA was this really weird monopoly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, you can say it's not government, except that it is government. If you have if you have a monopoly of governments governance, you are government at that right. point. Yeah. Um, whether you like government or not, I think is even kind of irrelevant. If you if you don't have anyone else you can go to. So all I mean, all philosophical arguments aside, which which are valid, it is clearly an excuse not to innovate, and it's not good for higher education. It's why we have way too much college debt. Graduation rates are incredibly low. Salaries coming out are low. I mean, the, you know, everyone knows now that it's a disaster. We were saying it's going to be a disaster in 1998. I mean, that's we were way too early. The seven solutions were way too early because you could see the train wreck coming, but the train wreck hadn't gotten here yet. And the train wreck's here now. I mean, we've got $1.8 trillion in college debt that these poor kids can't get rid of. You can't get rid of it in bankruptcy. And so, you know, it's, it's hurting the mortgage industries. And, and then there's people that want to forgive all that and make college free. What an incredible disaster to, to take. You know, you say, oh, well, free college, how could that be bad? Well, because college doesn't work right now. And you just have more people being paid a lot of money to make something not work. It, it, it's insane. Yeah, I, the, it's it, this, um, it's such a strange again, like people hold these ideas in their head at the same time, I think just conveniently that incentives matter or they don't matter at all. So we, they obviously matter because we should tax bad things like smoking or trans fats or large bottles of Coke, because if we tax it, people will use less of it. But if we uh, make it free, they won't use more of it or they will use more of it in a good way. Um, I, I don't. Th I well, think there's a lot of motivated reasoning in all of these problems. At well, the end well, again, of the day. if you wanted to say, if you wanted to say, I wouldn't necessarily be unfair. If you wanted to say, we should give everyone five thousand dollars to learn more, and 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 you know, then you're going to have to define what that means, and that's where you get in trouble. But it's different to say I'm going to give every person some voucher or some scholarship to go learn. That's different than saying we're going to pay the universities to do whatever they want. That's unfortunately when we talk about making college free, that's what people generally are talking about. They think you're going to give students all this freedom. That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about wiping out the debt and giving colleges all the money. You don't give a system that's failing more money. That's just, that, that's a bad idea. <laughs> it is failing, and everyone knows it's failing. That seems to be one of the most popular ratchet effects in, I mean, perhaps in government in general, but certainly in the education conversation. It's always we can solve, th this is a disaster, let's give it more money. It seems like that's yeah. almost always the answer. Well, and, here, I, and, I mean, yeah, and here's the big mistake, I think. The big mistake is, this goes back um, to the work of your friend George Mason. The value must be in the credential. So if, we, if and prestige is easy just to give away. 
So if we make all this prestige free, if everyone just had a Harvard degree, everyone would have a high paying job or everyone had a Stanford degree. Well, that's not true. I mean, so, so it, you, prestige doesn't mean anything without competence. It's one, it's one of my favorite movies of all time is the, is the Incredibles. And there's this moment where the bad guy who is, you know, so if you've never seen the Incredibles, it's about a family of superheroes and the, the one of the, the bad guys, um, I don't want to give it away. But he's not a superhero. He doesn't have genetic natural powers, but he comes up with technological ones to try to kind of take 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 down these these specials. And at one point, he says, "I'm going to give all this away because when everyone's special, no one will be." Yeah. And that was like the whole. That was his evil plot. I'm going to make everyone special because then no one will be special. And it's. Um, there is a certain truth in that, especially if, especially if the entire point, like you're saying, is the only reason why this, this, this certificate is valuable is because it's scarce. If you make it not scarce, you will kill its value. So you went from this enormously successful career as an entrepreneur and as an oil man and as a geologist and as a businessman. And then you enter this high, this, um, higher education complex and win these awards as, as a teacher in higher ed with like really obviously high performing students, MBA students. How do you end up starting a, 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 an elementary school? Well, and, and, and I better be really clear here, you know, Laura started it. And so, you know, co-founder is my exalted title I got later for stepping up and, and leading the middle school discussions, but it was really Laura's baby. But it did come from a um, meeting where our, our two boys were um, kindergarten age. They had been in Montessori school. Um, our daughter was older and she was at one of the best private schools in town. And our question was, when should we transition from Montessori to traditional school? You know, should we do it this year, next year, how soon? So I went to see the very best teacher at her very good school a tall man, uh, I won't say his name, but a delightful guy and clearly a great teacher. And I said, when should we transition the boys? And he said, without, but just as soon as possible. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, once they've had all that freedom, they won't like, like being chained at a desk for eight hours a day. And before I could even think, I, I said, well, I don't blame them. And he looked down for the longest time. And I thought I'd offend him. I was confused. And he looked up and he had tears in his eyes and he shook his head really softly and he shook his head and said softly, uh, I don't either. And so I went home that day and I told Laura, I said, we're done. I don't know what we're doing. We can start a school, we can homeschool, but I just met with the guy who everybody says is the best teacher in that whole school. And he told me not to put my sons in traditional school. And he was very clear about it. So I'm finished. So I can quit my job. We can, and and know, this was at a, this was at a, a prestigious private school. It's a terrific school. It's still a good traditional yeah. school. And, um, you know, so we, Laura started with seven young people and five brave families acting academy. And we started over with a blank sheet of paper and said, what should learning look like? And we had no idea. And it's still an experiment. Um, but we started completely over at a time when with technological changes and with the, you know, being able to find information on the internet. Uh, it was just a, with the Socratic method, you know, we were borrowing from all these great places. It was just a wonderful time to start something new. And, uh, you know, as you know, but I'll say fast forward, it's now 10 years later. I mean, that's been now 10 years. We have 150 Actons around the world. 
these one-room schoolhouses with technological you know, innovation that go from uh, elementary all the way through high school. Um, the owners are all coming in town this week. 150. We'll start another 150 this year. And they're oh, that's incredible growth. Oh, I mean, it's that's incredible to double growth. the total number of schools. Yeah. Well, and we have 12,000 applications to start a school. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's limited by our ability to help people launch them. But it's the single best thing I've ever done uh, or been a part of. And um, we have been completely blown away by what young people could do. They, they just, they can do far more than we ever imagined. And the whole school's founded on the idea that every person who walks in the door is a genius. And our job is to help them find a calling that'll change the world. And it's back to this pecking order thing. Everybody's good at something. I, uh, I had asked, so when we first moved down to Austin, I quickly got connected to Max Borders, his uh, wife, Carly, I think had, had been a, a, a she guide. Helped us early. Yeah, she was an early guide. And so I was aware of Acton pretty quickly because I'm a, a super interested in education and I have, you know, we have a son and, and Mateo has been through all these different pedagogies. When we came down, he was, was initially with, at the Waldorf School and then a Montessori School. And now, um, for a lot of reasons, he's at Acton. This has been his first year. And one of the criticisms, and I think this is a criticism that a lot of private schools get, was, well, of course the Acton kids are amazing. They're just taking the best kids there are. They've got a, and you do have a very rigorous application process. Yeah. And, um, and I asked Mateo, is it, you know, do you have to be smart to get into Acton, do you think? Like, is this, is it, and he, and he said, I don't think you have to be smart. I do think you have to want to be smart. Yeah. Well, so, so yeah. can you answer that criticism? Yeah. Well, first off, the criticism is absolutely just, and um, we do we do we can set up a system where we can ask of our customers and make a contract with them, you know, and, and, and be pretty tough about upholding that contract. What's interesting is Mateo's comments right on. Um, when we first started the middle school, half the people who came were in the bottom ten percent of the test scores; the other half were in the top one percent, because. If you're doing okay in the middle, why would you go anywhere else, right? It's hard to change schools. Right. The fascinating thing is six months later, you couldn't tell the difference. So, you know, we had a young lady that made up seven or eight grade levels in math in one year. She'd been told she was terrible at math. And, you know, frankly, she wasn't very good at math and as far as just aptitude. But you can learn a lot of math if you want to pretty fast. And what we learned was it, you know, it is all about wanting to and believing you're on the hero's journey. And that's why the whole idea of the school being the hero's journey and the genius who finds a calling matters. Once you decide that's true, you can learn almost anything. So I want you to explain the mechanics of the school, but first talk to me about this hero's journey. It's something that we, you sure. know, it's, so for those that don't know that it's this concept that was written about by Joseph Campbell and it was about epic storytelling. The classic example of the hero's journey is Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Um, but, 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 but why, but why is this such an important concept for you? Why is it something that is emblazoned on the school grounds? Well, one, because it works. But second, I, I, think, it's, um, I, I think as humanity, we've decided it's our story. It's Lion King, it's Star Wars, it's Lord of the Rings. It's, I mean, it's 80% of the movies that work um, are about the hero's journey. It's about the hero striving and overcoming and becoming. 
it's our story. So I, so I think it, all Campbell did was recognize that it's a very universal human longing. And um, it, you're either going to be a hero or you're going to be a victim. So why does a, how does a, a, a kind of story architecture for mo- great movies end up being important to thinking about education? Gosh, that's a great question of how I don't remember why the hero's journey to us. I mean, why I, mean, I thought about the hero's journey at acting in the business school a lot. We thought about this arc uh, in very ways. It's a Christian arc, too. I mean, there's a very much a, a theological, you know, moving forward in time kind of feeling to it. And I don't remember. I'd have to go back and ask Laura. You know, we knew that was the, what we wanted to found the school on. I don't remember what triggered it at that moment because I'd been doing it a long time. She'd been reading about it, but it was the most important thing we did. And and we really redefined in many ways what people want when they learn. And I think this is one thing we got right very early, that there's four questions people will ask when you want to learn. The first one is, who am I? And that's, who am I? Where am I now? Where am I going? That's the hero's journey. The second question was, what skills uh, do I need and which must I master? So I need to be pretty good at reading, writing, math, but I'm going to be world-class at plumbing. So that's the second question. The third one is, who needs to affirm me and hold me accountable? We all think about that great teacher in grade school or middle school, but Mr. Coonrod, for me, wasn't a great algebra teacher. Heck, he was a coach. (laughs) But he believed in me, right? And so you need someone to believe in you. It doesn't have to be an authority figure in a classroom. It can be. But, but you do need, so we needed to set up a system that would do that. And then the fourth question, how do I prove what I can do? I need badges or I need something that's not a hollow credential. I need real work. And that's why we have apprenticeships are so important. In I need to be able to go out and do real stuff and have a letter of reference. So those are the four questions we built the school around. And the hero's journey was the first one. So you've got these four questions. So these are questions that you kind of say you're you're saying are part of that's what our customers want to answer right so it's like uh, we're saying these are assumptions about what a student uh, what a student should is ultimately going to want or should want out of their edu out of their learning process and or what a parent wants their right or what our young people want our parents want yeah um and then how does that start to then manifest how does that start what 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 did that those four sort of guiding customer principles lead to right away and what worked what worked and what didn't work like what's because i know it's been a very it's been an evolving and even in just the uh you know little over half a year that we've been at the school we've watched in real time how things change a lot how actively you guys and how you and laura personally I mean, we have this incredible luxury of being at your school with you, um, as opposed, you know, so. But, but it's interesting, around the world, in 20-something countries now, in 30-something states and Canadian provinces, we're seeing the same problems and the same opportunities. I think it's human nature. I mean, we're seeing them you know, all over the world. It's, it, it's all playing out the same. And I think we know about 15% of the model. So you ask how it started. It started with, hey, here's an idea why don't you read things you really like? And I get in so much trouble with classical classicists about this, and I'm a big believer in the classics. I'm a great books kind of guy. But we said, look, start out reading comic books. Doesn't matter. Harry Potter. Oh, Harry Potter's terrible. I like Harry Potter. You know, <laughs> but, but what you find is if you let people read whatever they want and they love to read, 
they'll eventually read better stuff. And so we have 10 and 11 year olds reading War and Peace or reading, you know, because they want to read and they love to read. So here's an idea. Love to read. We're going to tell great stories about civilization. It's not American history. It's why do some civilizations rise and others fall? That's why I care about the past. I want to know who I am, where I'm going. And math. Well, great. Thankfully, Khan Academy and many of the game-based math programs have made it easy to learn at your own pace. So now I've got reading, writing, math. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, we've got reading, math, and civilization. Then there's writing. And we stumbled into something really interesting with writing because you think, well, I have to teach writing or I have to... Yeah, grammar and... Grammar. Well, it turns out, and this is, I think this will make sense. Um, if you try to teach grammar with a red pencil, people hate to write. Nobody likes to have their tell their papers terrible, right? I still think I have scars from grammar. From right. My, from English. It was called yeah. English class. Right. So, so, <laughs> so, yes, you should have good grammar. And I probably made eight grammatical mistakes during this broadcast, but... It, you know, you, you want to learn to love to write. So we start with learning to love to write. And then we stumble into if you have friends review, peer review your work and give you a critique, you're under an obligation to write better the next time, to write something, a better draft. And so what we learned is young people will write a lot. In fact, Mateo in the middle school will write 100 pages of finished material this year. It's more than most people write in graduate school in a PhD program. Well, the reason he does that is he and his friends like to critique each other. If you write 100 pages a year and you want to be better, you get to be a really good writer and the grammar stuff takes care of itself. I, it's funny. I, um, I was this, I was a little weird because my, I, my two areas of interest, I guess they do overlap, but, um, I liked studio arts. I liked being the creative making stuff. And then I loved math and physics and the, and the, I loved the systems solutions things. And I really didn't like anything else. I didn't like social studies and history. It was boring. I didn't like English and gram- and, and and the things that came in that, like grammar and writing. It's boring. It's boring and horrible. Um, anything that involved just memorization. I didn't like things like chemistry when it was memorization. It was boring. Um, and so I even even through college, I don't really feel like I, I progressed a lot as a writer. Hmm. And I still have this baggage of being very, like, hesitant to even call myself a writer. But I will say, like, after school, just having to write the amount of emails inside of Viacom. Right. And try to communicate clearly. Well, if you didn't write them correctly inside of Viacom, it was going to hurt, right? I mean, you had to write better emails. Oh, man. And I made some mistakes along the way there that really made me learn what the value of editing and reading your work before you hit send. (laughs) And... And so just the act of doing it a lot. Oh, our, our, our young people turn out to be beautiful writers. We have not taught one minute of math, and you know this is true, one minute of, of writing in the entire school if, for 10 years. And every single person in Launchpad, our high school, is a beautiful writer. So let's get to this core thing, because this is the thing that when I explain what Mateo's school is like, people, their eyes sometimes bug out of their head. Uh, so explain like how the mechanic works of like what is the student experience at Acton Academy? Well, so in the morning you're going to be working on core skills, and you're going to have a choice. You can do reading, writing, math, or civilization. Um, you may want to do reading all day. I may want to break it up. Now I've got a series of badges over time in each one I'm going to learn. So I've got a long term, and I've got to learn from the beginning of elementary school, where I might set my goals for an hour 
to by middle school, you know, Mateo's setting his goals now by certainly the week and probably by six-week increments. So you're learning to set goals and reach them, but you're in control of what you work on today. And you're going to work on these core skills, reading, writing, math, and civilization. In the afternoons, you're going to do project-based, narrative-based quests. So you may be Thomas Edison in his Menlo Park lab doing electricity experiments. So we're going to learn complex, team-based, problem-solving skills, the kind of network kind of skills you're talking about. We're going to learn those in these hands-on quests in the afternoon. And you're going to learn to run this whole community, this Tocquevillian society, with your classmates. And, you know, you, again, you know this, we'll go a day and no adult will even go into middle school. They run the entire place. I was, I was guiding in the elementary studio where I'm not really capable for three days not long ago, and not one young person spoke to me. They did everything. So there was effectively no adult there. I mean, I just wanted to be down there for safety reasons. We always have an adult in the elementary studio. Didn't need me. I was totally surprised. The, the older elementary students led the lessons. And again, they're asking Socratic questions. They're not teaching. Got the quest ready, administered, governed the school. No adult. So uh, the just to... Just to be clear the students the the guides the adults in the room are have a rule right and what is that rule there 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 are not many big rules and actually one of them is a guide an adult may never ever answer a question for (laughs) any reason whatsoever and because we don't want to be authority figures it's great for young people to have authority figures father and mother authority figures they're authority figures in the world, but we don't want to serve as that. We want them to be learn to become their own authority figures in the studios. So one other criticism I had read early on, which for me sounded great, but for a lot of people I imagine could sound like a genuine criticism, was Acton Academy is and I'm gonna be this is I'm just I'm gonna quote this and then oh, you can be is uh, is homeschooling for rich people. Now and here's a uh, First of all, your, your your tuition is ninety five. At least here in Austin, was I think ninety five hundred bucks a year, under ten thousand dollars a year. Right. Which for a private school with the kind of experience I feel Mateo is having is unbelievably affordable. It's a fourth what we paid for our daughter to go to the most expensive private school in town. So I know I mean, that in Northern New Jersey, kindergarten the kindergartens were thirty five thousand dollars a year. The only the only affordable non public option was the Catholic school, and yeah. and and they're subsidized by the diocese. And you and you you're you're competitive with Catholic school prices. Well, our actually cost to run the school you won't like this as a parent. Our cost is now below four thousand dollars a year. You're so exploiting I'm me. I'm exploiting you. <laughs> Of course, we put it's a not-for-profit, so we put all that money back into other schools and help people. But, but, but the reason, frankly, we don't charge. Laura keeps saying, "Why don't we charge forty five hundred? I said, "Because the competition's you know twenty thousand to forty thousand dollars a year, and it just how are you going to decide who gets to come? So you price it at that. Let's build more and more actions. I think I think we have seven in Austin now. So or we'll soon have by September we'll have seven. So the idea is let's build more, and then the then the competition will bring the price down. So, um, so you come in, so this criticism and it's like homeschooling, I think it arrives from this notion that, like you said, the kids are there, you've built this set of rules and frameworks for them to effectively, in, in a real sense, teach themselves. Right. So why come? What are they getting? Is that, is why, why is it a benefit to even come if the kids are teaching themselves? 
well, uh, I mean, obviously no, I'm no, no, doing no, no, it. So, no, no, but... no, no, it's a great question because what more do we want for our, for our sons and daughters than to be independent human beings who can go out in the world and accomplish something in groups of people they want to associate with that's amazing in the world without the help of an outside authority? I mean, I mean, in other words, this is life. It's life to be able to go out in the world and, and move amongst people older and younger. And, you know, you know, as well as on our studios, we've got elementary and high school age and middle schoolers mixing all the time, helping each other. It's like a it is like a big family in a way. Um, but what a wonderful thing to recreate what we all loved as children in our neighborhoods to be able to be with other young people who are amazing doing things without an adult. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you, one of the, one of the, if you ever want to give a speech to young people, this is my secret weapon, all you have to start out with is ask the question, who's tired of being bullied or pushed around by somebody older? <laughs> and every hand will go up. And you buy a parent, a coach, an older brother. We forget young people get pushed around all the time. So to be in a place where they're free to make mistakes, learn to fail early, cheaply, and often, where sometimes it's tyrannical and other times it's Lord of the Flies, but you got to work it out. That's life. So they're learning how to live life. And it's hard and it doesn't, it's not smooth and it's not, but boy, when the young people come out of it and the ones that make it, um, they are amazing. And, and our two sons are now 16 and 17. And I tell you, whatever else happens, it's worth it a hundred times over that in two more years, they're on their own doing what they can do in the world. If I walk out here and get hit by a car right now, they're going to be fine. And as a parent, and, and that would have been true at 13 and 14, there's no better feeling in the world that I'm glad they still want me around. In fact, I'm delighted to be around them. I can't wait to go home and see them because they're so much fun, but they don't need me anymore. That's my job. My job is not to be their best friend. It's not to protect them. It's not to, and my job is to, is to work myself out of a job so they can go lead an amazing life. I have an extra affliction as a parent in that I am 100% Italian and was raised by South Philly Italian parents. <laughs> and so I want to I want to be that to be my job, but I also want my little baby boy to never leave. <laughs> I know. No. Oh, it breaks my heart to think that they're going to be gone. I don't know what we're going to do. No, oh. it breaks my heart cuz I love them so much. And you know, but what's more creepy than the parent that won't leave, right? <laughs> you know, like, no. But no, I mean, you, it's 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 part of the hero's journey as a parent that you've got to, I mean, what, how terrible is it going to be the day they walk away? And, you know, they'll come back for Christmas and things, but they're not supposed to come back forever. I mean, you know, they're supposed to go do their own thing. Oh, I, um, I talk to my parents probably at least four times a week. Yeah. And, um, I never thought I'd actually leave the Northeast. And then we, when we moved down here to Austin, and my mom will always blame this on my wife because she's not the blood relative. So, of course, she's always got she's always going to be the at fault um uh, no one's good enough for an italian mother's son that's just if you know um but it's hard i know the heartbreak she has for the fact that we don't we were not a drive away and it was the one thing about the move every other aspect of it especially having lived up up in the northeast and suffering the the taxes the cost of living the commute time which was four hours a day which i love i hate and love because i taught myself economics on the bus but um, it's so difficult to leave your parents behind, and it's yeah. so difficult as a parent to let go. And you've, you know, we've talked about um, offline that this challenge 
that you guys face at Acton of, of, with parents of having them be able to let go, be able to not helicopter their kids' educational problems. And t- so talk about that. Talk about that challenge at, well, at the level well, of the parents. Sure. And, and, and I want to be clear, you know, we all want deep and long relationships with our children as, you know, as competent adults and loving relationships as parents and children. And I mean, I, I hope, you know, I hope I get to talk to my boys four times a day, but I'll say this, if they don't want me calling them, I won't call them. Right. I mean, I mean, I, I want them calling me. Um, what, what I think we see is parents trying to live out their lives through their children is very damaging. Parents trying to, out of some fear or trying to, to, I think I see it lots of times trying to remedy something that happened to them um, is not healthy. We, we, see, we see it all the time. And a parent will come in and say, well, I hear Johnny was bullied. He got pushed down. And it's like, well, yeah, but that, I mean, he pushed somebody else down. They, the bullying really doesn't happen. And, you know, at Acton, we see it every day. Everybody's around. We, you would know. And then if you listen long enough, then the parent will finally say, well, when I was a child and I was bullied... And Laura and I see us doing the same thing. We see us, you know, when we get mad about something, if you pause and step away from it, it's all about your shadow and something that happened to you. And so we've just gotten to where parents, many parents are so overprotective or they see themselves, if something, my child fails, I'm failed as a parent. And I've seen parents do everything right and have very difficult children. We've been lucky. We've had easy children. I don't, I think that's because we haven't screwed them up and we got lucky. So this idea of I'm going to define my failure or success as a parent based on whether my children succeed, I want them to succeed, but I'm not defining myself by that. I, I, you know, that's not fair. I, you know, I, uh, I'm obsessed with this, um, this book uh, by Jonathan Haidt and Greg uh, Lukan, Lukanoff. I, I think I'm screwing up his name, but so be it. Um, the Coddling of the American Mind. Right. And it and it, the thesis is in uh, 2013, 2014, they both started to notice. They're both, uh, you know, uh, John Jonathan's a professor at NYU, and Greg works at this organization, Fire, that advocates for free speech on college campuses. That college students were starting to go from being the lead advocates of free free speech yeah. on college campuses to demanding. Um, protection from controversial speech and from speech that sort of uh, challenges their own beliefs. And the protection was come, was being asked for trigger warnings of being an example or safe spaces in the name of safety. You need to keep us safe. This needs to be a safe environment. And the book's basic thesis, so they wrote this article that was published in The Atlantic and was became like one of their most widely read articles of, in the history of the magazine. And then the book that, that's, that, that followed from that, that just got released this past year, basically lays out a theory that has haunted me as a parent, um, which is that at some point, uh, the gener- and this, it seems to be marked by the generation, generation Z, the generation that was sort of born in the 90s. This generation of kids has not had free play or sort of parentless, authorityless life, that every second of their day, there is the authority figure of the parent there. Um, and that they've, um, they've been in this state of constant protection from, from everything. Yeah. 
straight through to college. And that's as contrasted with like my upbringing, which is like living outside of Philly and you'd get home from third grade and you'd immediately go outside and your parents had no idea really where you were until you came home for dinner and you're running all around the neighborhood and you're getting into like fights and you're trying to come up with games to play and trying to figure out the rules and getting in arguments about the rules and, you know, thinking like, oh, should we jump off that roof? And now I might get hurt and you try it and you hurt your leg or you break your leg, but you, and, and, and like you're figuring out how to, ex, how to live in your body and live in the world. And, and, and you're figuring so much stuff out that we never had to think about it. it. Just was like, that's always the way it always was. And as a parent now, that's like kind of, I mean, as a kid, so basically the book says that went away. And now, man, if you let your kids walk down the street without a parent and go into a 7-Eleven, somebody might call Child Protective Services on you. Well, and you, 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 you made the comment earlier on the few things that ever makes me mad, and you didn't say this at all, but I do hear that, well, acting works for our kids, but not their kids. And, you know, there's a, there's a racial, a socioeconomic, there's a, there's a nastiness when I hear that at a cocktail party, which is why I don't ever go to cocktail parties. <laughs> but, but the one thing I will say is, from what I've seen with lots of West Austin, you know, wealthy parents, I think parental dysfunction is positively correlated with income, not negatively correlated. So the idea that people that have money, you know, don't have family problems, we all have family problems. Everybody's got issues. I mean, you know, it's, it's, and, and so, I, you know, I don't think this works for the coddled, like you say, or, if, you know, for the, for the privileged. It works for people who are willing to let their children go out and learn how life really is. And life can be hard. And it's, you know, and, and you persevere over the challenges. You know, life's really unfair sometimes. But if you look at life like that, it just gets more and more unfair. If you go out and try to make something of it, it becomes a lot more fun. And again, I, I'm wearing my intellectual, my ideological priors on my sleeve here. The only thing my son has heard about fairness is that the world is not fair. <laughs> I, and I, we have these conversations. All, he, he's turned out to be, much to my pleasure, a super philosophical kind of kid. He really, he's also a very optimistic, happy. I mean, you know, he really does have a glass uh, half full view of the world, which is delightful to be around. My guess is, by the way, that's mostly temperament. I mean, I mean, I, you, yeah. know, you get credit oh. for not crushing that, but that's a natural no, thing. He he's, not, he's blessed with it. He's um he, he he's he's he he's always been uh we we call him like the Buddha because he's a very even keeled kid, but something I noticed um you can beat that out of him though I mean, I mean my my point is you get great credit for not screwing that up, well, you know, it's great <laughs> that that's his natural but but you can you know that's his parents my job is not to screw something up and then they're going to become who they're going to become and you've allowed. Mateo to become. Well, it's funny. The other, again, like I may, Brian Kaplan's maybe one of my most, one of my favorite economists. He has another book called Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. And the thesis of the book is have lots of kids because, you know, people, people will not have kids because like, oh, it's expensive or I don't know, I have to plan it. I got to worry. And I'm actually, I'm on the younger side for, I'm 41 and Mateo's 13. And, you know, I was one of, I was probably on the young side of my peers for, when he was born, I was, you know, 28. My dad was 23. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the selfish reason to have more kids is don't worry about it. There's not that much you can do. Yeah. Like, it's not really, 
they're going to be who they're going to be. And he relies on all these twin studies. As right. One and I think those... the, more, the more you have, the more you realize that and you can kind of give up. You know, and you're just like, okay, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay or they're going to have problems and you're going to do your best. But, you know, you, it's not all on you. And the thing I um, – and I know I, you've been so generous with your time, so I want to uh, start to wrap things up together. But um, one of the things about acting, to come back to this sense of coddling – is that you know the kid that I, I I so exciting to me about the the growth that's happening with the school, mm-hmm. is that it it is now hard if you are a parent who sees this problem of your kids becoming fra- of of the of of young adults today who are now fragile, who are like they're adults they could be drafted they could be working, and they put their hands over their ears like an infant and and scream and yell and say no 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 I can't hear you. Be- Whenever somebody offers an opinion that offends their sensibilities, or uh, or whatever, well, or they end up on your couch after college for ten years because they can't bear to go out and get turned down for a job. Yeah, or or realize that, like I used to say, you know, when I, I went to film school and I, I got out and and um, I was on a film, an early film set, and the AD said. I never hire anybody from NYU. And I almost went to NYU film school. And I said, why? I mean, isn't that what it's one of the best films? They come out and they think they're directors. You're not a director when you come out of film school. You're a production assistant. Go get me coffee. Yeah. And my dad, my dad is a surgeon, but he's kind of like a rough, he's a tough guy. He's like, you know, let's go lay some tile. What's your problem? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I learned that from him and I thank him for it because it's, you know, oh, I'm going to, you know, you, oh, you want me to take out the trash? I'm going to do the best trash taken out you've ever seen and um so you know how do you make your kids anti-fragile how do you make them how do you make it so that they overcome adversity and and come out the other end stronger you know what would you know we've we've in this time of sticks and stones may break your bones but but speech is violence i mean it's the craziest thing in the world and so when i look at acton i see and i know it's a lot to put on the school because it shouldn't be the school's job but you've set up a system where at least within the constraints of what it is he's there to do, yeah. my son can sink or swim and has to figure it out. Yeah, in, in, in a really relatively safe place, right? I mean, right. like the bad stuff that happens feels bad. But if he tells a lie, he gets sent home for a day and has to come back and apologize. If he, we're all going to tell a lie. And how? And we, we had one parent that said, "Thank goodness it happened now, and not on his tax return you know, <laughs> ten years from now." Well, let, let let me end with one story that I think sums up everything about this because, you know, we can think about coddling and we think about overparenting. We, but but what I really want to focus on is the magnificence when you remove all this. Because what we keep being surprised about over and over again is just how extraordinary these young people are. They can learn at 10 times the rate. They become kind. They learn to become great writers. I mean, it's you focus on the few negatives, you forget the positives. And so we had one of our acting owners in um, the, the, the orientation before last, about six weeks ago. And we normally don't allow um, an, an educator to open an acting. It's almost always parents who haven't been educated. This fellow had a background in education, but his own children were going to go to the school to the acting. And I said, what have you learned from the day of being on campus, of seeing this? And he said, it's as if I had spent my whole life studying tigers, believing I was a tiger expert, but I had always been studying tigers in cages. Now I have seen tigers in the real world, and I realize what magnificent creatures they are. 
and I realize I know nothing about tigers at all. And that's the truth is young people are magnificent creatures. They are amazing at what they can do. They will fail. They will stumble. They'll get back up. But they are extraordinary if you just let them free with responsibility, with consequences. You know, it's not utopia, but the, the impact of magnificent tigers set free. I'll never forget his words because he summed up the reason that I'm glad our two boys went there. I can't think of a better way to end our conversation, Jeff. Thanks so much for spending the time with me. It's a delight to be with you. Thanks for listening to the Emergent Order podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you're interested in being a guest, shoot us an email at podcast at emergentorder.com. Our producer is Jesse Bennett. Thanks again and speak to you next time.